I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, Francesca Albanese, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories Occupied Since 1967, discusses the Israeli occupation of Gaza and the West Bank, the recent Israeli settler violence against the West Bank village of Puwara, the need for a paradigm shift in the international community's discourse on the occupied territories, applying an international law and human rights perspective to understanding and dealing with the occupation, and the importance of addressing the issue of Palestinian self-determination. Additionally, we will also cover the weaponization of anti-Semitism to shut down criticism of Israel and Israel's lack of cooperation with not just Francesca Abanese, but also special rapporteurs prior to her. All that and more on this edition of Parallax Views. With that being said, let's get right to it with Francesca Albanese. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very, very excited to be speaking with. Uh, She's doing really important work as the UN Special Rapporteur on the Situation of Human Rights in the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967. Francesca Apanese, how are you doing today? Fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Francesca, there's a lot going on right now uh, with Israel and Palestine and the occupied territories. We just saw what happened uh, in the West Bank, in the village of Huwara uh, a week ago. Uh, Things are are very... um, intense right now. Uh, But before we get into that, could you maybe explain the nature of responsibilities and maybe the limitations or boundaries of your mandate as a special rapporteur? Uh, Sure thing. So um, special rapporteurs are independent experts appointed by the Human Rights Council on a given term. We operate between three and six years. My term is six years. And normally we are asked to document and report um, on the human on a given human rights situation, being it thematic or um, country specific, um, out of uh, fifty five special rapporteurs, 
14 are geographic, have a geographic mandate. My case is one of those. And my responsibility is to document and report once per year to the Human Rights Council, once per year to the General Assembly on the human rights situ international law situation uh, in the occupied Palestinian territory, um, meaning the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. So first limitation of uh, my mandate is territorial. I do not deal with the entirety of the Palestinian people, and so I don't. I cannot deal. Uh, I cannot investigate uh, situations happening in Israel or concerning the refugees, and I can only investigate violations committed as of 1967. Which doesn't mean that I I, sh I cannot uh, consider. Um, uh, the facts that have occurred before. It's the investigation which is missing. And uh, and then, I mean, concerning the, the limitations of my mandate, well, the most important one is the fact that any special rapporteurs based, um, I mean, his or her reports on country visits, and I'm mandated to have at least two country visits per year. Um, and Israel does not facilitate that because Israel doesn't recognize this mandate, doesn't cooperate with this mandate. But you know, until 2007, it has allowed special rapporteurs to, to enter the occupied Palestinian territory. Because, uh, I mean, in, in as much as the occupation has never been particularly ple pleasant, it was not as brutal and as repressive as it is today. We should remember that Israel doesn't have sovereignty over the occupied Palestinian territory and cannot arbitrarily um, deprive Palestinians from moving freely within and outside the occupied territory, including uh, external experts. I'm invited by the by the state of Palestine to uh, to visit um, the occupied Palestinian territory. And Israel is just to facilitate this. But so far, it has not been very uh, cooperative. So Israel hasn't been very, um, it, it's it's not a fan of this mandate. It refuses to sort of work with uh, uh, the, the special rapporteurs. I would say that more generally, yes. I mean, what you said is correct. I mean, it's a, a nice way of putting it that Israel is not a big fan of this mandate, for sure. But it seems to me that Israel... Uh, as many, many regimes which are not uh, particularly compliant with international law is not per a particular fan of human rights scrutiny because it's, uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the limitations um, this mandate is experiencing, and I would like to underscore for your audience that this is not something against me in particular because my predecessor, Professor My Michael Link, and his predecessor, Professor Richard Kwok, have experienced the same challenges and the same attacks and smear that I'm experiencing. Um, and then, of course, the more you expose yourself, the more you engage publicly, the more you get attacked and, and criticized. But this is another story. But other human rights experts think of the uh, Omar Shakir, uh, the um, director of uh, Human Rights Watch Israel-Palestine Bureau, or think of the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, whose international staff has been prevented from entering the occupied Palestinian territory, Ramallah, since two years. And now even the national staff, the Palestinians, um, who are uh, employed by the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, are experiencing significant movement restrictions. This is a retaliation. I wanted to ask as well, um, how do you see your work within the uh, work of your predecessors like Michael Link, Richard Falk, and John Dugard? And we should note uh, that I, I believe you're the first female with uh, this mandate. Yes, I'm, I, I am. Um, and I'm, I feel really privileged to have stepped into this mandate uh, carrying the precious legacy of my three predecessors. In fact, there has also been another one, um, an Indonesian special rapporteur in between uh, Richard Falk and Michael Link, uh, the Sono, but he, he, yeah, he only he stepped out very early in his mandate. 
because of lack of cooperation, lack of cooperation uh, of Israel. But so how do I leave my this legacy, as I said, this precious legacy? Is that I think that all of them, um, John Duger, Richard Falk, and Michael Link, have contributed tremendously in raising awareness, in pointing to the bigger picture, in analyzing, particularly Michael Link, specific contextual or architectural issues like the legality of the occupation, the fact that settlements constitute war crimes, the fact that Israel, through the occupation, imposes a variety of measures amounting to um, collective punishment, um, but also to exposing, um, I mean, uh, he did a great job in exposing the responsibilities of the international community in to the extent it enables, but to a large extent it even funds uh, the, the the occupation and um, so I eventually I decided uh, to take on this legacy and continue this work by having thematic a thematic focus giving a thematic focus to my report but also simplifying really explaining international law uh, in a way uh, that speaks to the people so connecting the law, the facts uh, to the larger public possibly interested in the question of Israel and Palestine, primarily policymakers who have a responsibility to realize a number of rights uh, in the context of Palestine, including the rights of self-determination and to ensure protection, international protection of the Palestinian people. If I have listeners that are uh, new to the Israel-Palestine issue, um, could you clarify for them uh, what the occupation is like? What what constitutes the occupied territories? We're specifically mm-hmm. talking about uh, the West Bank and Gaza. We're not talking about uh, like Israel itself. Uh, so talk about yeah. the occupied territory and what we mean by that. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there is a way to describe to describe the, what has happened in the territory. But let's say for an, um, which Israel has occupied as of 1967. But in fairness. If there were someone in your audience um, unfamiliar with the region, it, it probably would be also useful to know that the question of Palestine has been ongoing for 100 years now. Um, and, the, um, and the reason why uh, it is so is because for various historical circumstances, uh, the land of Palestine um, which was largely inhabited by Muslim and Christian Arab and a minority of uh, Arab Jews until the, the beginning of the past century, uh, became uh, the place where the international community blessed and recognized the creation of a, of a state for Jewish people, which uh, co- coincided with the, uh, and to a large extent, caused the um, expulsion of 80% of the non-Jewish population of what constitutes today Israel, which was never allowed to return, which was depredated, which was uh, dispossessed of all the land that they possessed privately and publicly. So 96% of the states, uh, sorry, of the territory that constitutes uh, Israel today belonged to the Palestinians, I mean, to the Arabs of Palestine, and this is the origin of the of the of the question, which then has affected all developments ever since. Um, small small note: I've, I wrote, I mean, I've investigated the question of Palestine for more than I would have wanted, and in the past, I also wrote a book with my co-author Lex Stackenberg on the question of Palestinian refugees in international law. This is why I probably have a privileged um, knowledge of the of the question, including pre-1967. But now, with this in, in mind, so um, Israel constituted itself over the majority of the territory that was uh, once historical Palestine, right? And there are pieces of land that didn't... Um, didn't, I mean, that were remained outside Israel, and they are the, what we call today the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. These were the portions then of territory for 
I mean, it was much larger than, in fact, what it is, this or the occupied territory today. But in 1947, the United Nations, um, in order to um, to accommodate all the all the uh, the various groups, <laughs> let's put it this way, claims to uh, to, to the territory, uh, determined that there would be one Jewish state side by side. I mean, and and an Arab state. So the Arab state would comprise much more than what is today the Gaza Strip, the West Bank and the East Jerusalem. But however, a war ensued in 1948-1949 between Arab states and um, and um, not the Palestinians, Arab states, meaning Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, and Israel, e- Egypt and Israel. And at the end of which uh, Jordan took control and, and illegally annexed the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and uh, Egypt maintained um, the Gaza Strip under military occupation. Because, I mean, in a way they wanted to help, but um, the the help never never translated into real support. Between 1948 and 1967, this has been the reality. The Palestinians have been partially under Jordanian control, partially under uh, Egyptian um, control, but waiting for their own own realization of the right of self-determination. That over the years, Palestinians have have agreed would be in what remained of the land of Palestine. However, in 1967, Israel occupied um, the, the, the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. And it has been because of the, in the name of self-defense against the Arab neighboring Arab countries. Uh, we won't have the time to delve into whether it was self-defense or not. But six months after June, uh, 1967, the United Nations ordered the withdrawal of on two. I think it's on 22 of November 1967. The United Nations, the Security Council, ordered the withdrawal of the occupation. And since then, Israel has not only maintained the occupation, meaning its military troops in the West Bank, including no, in, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. But it has also fragmented the land because the West Bank and and uh, and Gaza have been separated under Israeli occupation and evolved into really two different regimes. Is Jerusalem has been considered illegally, but this has been considered annexed since 1980s. So the territory has has been fragmented. It has been colonized because Israel has promoted the transfer of its its own Jewish-Israeli population for the creation of Jewish-Israeli-only colonies, uh, which is the reason why, for the the exploitation of resources annexed to the territory. And this has comported also the use of violence and repression of the of the of the Palestinians under occupation, because as I often say, the occupation, I mean, keeping 50, the population occupied population without rights for fifty five years requires violence and triggers violence in in return. So this is the the reality. 55 years on, the Palestinians are without rights, severely discriminated, severely physically confined um, under various architectures of of oppression. And uh, and, uh, colonization, unfortunately, is thriving. So your most recent report, it dealt with uh, really the right to self-determination of Palestinians. Why was that the focus of your first report as a a UN special rapporteur on this issue? Mm. Uh, I decided to focus on the right of self-determination for three main reasons. One is, uh, and not necessarily in order of importance, but one is that I thought that the important and necessary debate which civil society has, uh, has, um, has provoked uh, Palestinian civil society, of course, which has been denouncing the the commission of the crime of apartheid uh, at the end of Israel for many many years, and then it was um, joined by Israeli civil society, and then Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, and in two thousand twenty-two by Michael Link as well. There has been an increasing denunciation of uh, Israel of Israeli's apartheid regime. So this was happening, and I thought it was very good and necessary. But at the same time, I said, what is the end of the 
of the apartheid uh, the framework. The dismantlement of the apartheid means equality. In the case of the occupied Palestinian territory, equality is not necessarily the, the, the best outcome. I mean, it's like skipping, uh, jumping to conclusions because it would be like recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the occupied territory. But there is an international consensus and even a, a, a peace process that the Palestinians committed to agreeing to um, uh, make many sacrifices but and, and accept to have their own states um, in the form of... Um, as a, to exercise the right of self-determination, which is the right to exist as a people, territorially, economically, culturally, politically, and they they would have they would exercise this right in the form of an independent state within the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem. This is this was always the the, the claim that the Palestinians have have made, but the way the peace process went determined otherwise. But however. Advocating for equality as the uh, apartheid, the dismantlement of apartheid leads to, is uh, jumping forward without taking into account the will of the Palestinians. It's up to the Palestinians to determine whether they want to give up to their their idea of one state, and they're fine uh, with becoming equal citizens of the Israelis under, I mean, and one state where they will be allowed then to vote and to have equal rights. But again, they cannot be just skipping forward. This is one. The second, but again, I, I, I do not dispute the fact that Israel uh, is committing the crime of apartheid, and I do not dispute that this analysis are correct and necessary. But, but you are saying is, there, not, not to interrupt you, but you are saying there is. Uh, we need to do even more than make the yeah. critique of apartheid, and we need to go beyond just the apartheid discourse slash framework. Yeah. Yeah, I will get... Yeah, 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 you're right. I do say that, and I will explain that in a minute. But because you asked me why, so this is one. There are other two reasons. The fact is that there is an obsessive, almost fanatical insistence by all states on the fact that the only solutions is the one, is the two-state solutions. Fine, but what does it mean? Because the two-state solution is not going to materialize in, I mean, miraculously, uh, with this asymmetry of forces between the Palestinians and the Israelis. The Palestinians remain the, the occupied people, even if they have the, the Palestinian Authority or Hamas in Gaza, doesn't matter. They're still under occupation under international law. And therefore, while advocating for a two-state solution, member states should be reminded that there are no there are certain conditions and certain rights that cannot be negotiated. And the right of self-determination is the first and foremost of these rights and conditions. And I will explain in a minute. And the third element is also, uh, again, and not, not particularly um, uh, implicit criticism to the international community, which keeps on using what I say, not only the negotiation clause, which I just mentioned, but also it treats the question of Palestine as if it was a humanitarian emergency to be dealing with in perpetuity without addressing the root causes. At every emergency, what do you have is humanitarian aid. So, for example, last year, Israel has demolished about 1,000 civilian structures, which is, I mean, in many cases, my amount to war crimes, um, like the, the, the demolition of houses, homes, schools, um, and other other uh, structures necessary for civilian life, right? And, uh, and, uh, and the international community has either condemned or uh, paid for reconstruction or both, or and again, most of the structures had already been built with the funds coming from interna the international community. This is not, um, a humanitarian aid cannot be an end in itself and cannot be um, a palliative to, to a substitute for justice and for respect for international law and the realization of human rights. 
So this was my criticism. And the other criticism is that the calling for economic development, as it's often done, including recently in Davos, I mean, it's, seriously, it makes me smile because I say, are these people so naive? They keep on talking about economic development. What economic development and growth can you have in a piece of land where, um, like the, the East Jerusalem, but even Gaza, where Israel controls all natural all natural resources, uh, land, water, uh, stones, uh, fuels, oil and gas, all is controlled by Israel. Where can you have development without access to uh, to resources? I mean, what these, the, the current scenario, what people call the status quo, can lead to as at best is a is a is a form of subjugation in perpetuity with the exercise of limited autonomy. And, and, I, and I say that this is incompatible with the right of self-determination, which is non-negotiable and is the right of all rights, is the right, as I said, of exist, to exist as a people, which I demonstrated in the report that Israel intentionally and, 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 um, and willfully violates in its four constitutive elements the, the right to, ex to exist, the right of a people to exist over a territory, the right to enjoy sovereignty over natural resources, the right to form a political, a, a polity, uh, meaning to determine uh, a political will, to form a political will and enjoy it freely while there is continuous interference by Israel into Palestinian political process. And be, this is being demonstrated over the years through the targeted assassination, the targeted killing of political leaders. And I'm not talking of military ranks. I'm talking of um, uh, the, 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 the founders of... Uh, of the, 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 the Palestinian liberation, Palestinian freedom thinkers, uh, which had nothing to do with military ranks, but they were in, like inspiring minds and voices for, for their people, or, but also religious leaders, teachers. I mean, there has been a, a, a severe repression, and there is now even repression of human rights defenders engaged on the question of justice and accountability of the Palestinian people. There is no space to be a Palestinian really under occupation. And and there is also part of it is the criminalization of any symbol of or the repression of any symbol of Palestinian identity, like the flag, uh, school curricula, uh, or Palestinian Palestinian uh, political activity centers, etc. In other words, it's almost like there's a uh, denial of pa of uh, Palestinian political existence and resistance. Yeah, I think that the, the, the violation of the right of self-determination is is severe and incorporates uh, what you're saying, the repression of political existence. It's and it, again, it's it's critical, but it's part of the problem of the larger problem, which is again the seizure of resources. Think that in 1967, I mean, from 1967 to 2023. The presence of Israeli settlers has grown from zero to 750,000. And this is a conservative estimate. And the colonies, the illegal colonies, have grown from zero to 270. And many of these have, uh, ex uh, have uh, been established during the years of this so-called peace process. Could you just... Um maybe get into more detail about we, what we mean when we say uh, the exploitation of natural resources in regards to the OPT and uh, human rights issues. Of course. So uh, I don't know if you can even now or later show a map of uh, a Nocha map of occupied, uh, the occupied Palestinian territory. But if you, again, I think that would be very helpful to those in the audience uh, who uh, are not necessarily experienced uh, with the language and the geography of uh, of the occupation, the Ochama, OPT Ocha maps. So, but basically, um, the occupied Palestinian territory is first and foremost, I mean, under international law, is recognized as the territorial unity. Oh, sorry, the territorial unit 
where the Palestinians can exercise their right of self-determination in the form of an independent statehood, which doesn't mean the, self, the right of self-determination, I miss, uh, clarify, the right of self-determination belongs to the people. So it also belongs to the refugees. It also belongs to the, uh, to the Palestinians inside Israel. But for them, for those in Israel, for example, it is to express itself as full citizenship, the right not to be discriminated culturally, politically, economically. <laughs> uh, and this is why I recommended the Commission of Inquiry to carry out an investigation on the right, to what extent the right of self-determination is protected for the Palestinian people as a whole, including the refugees and uh, those in Israel. But however, in, inside the occupied Palestinian territory, so the, the, the Gaza Strip is completely, completely sealed off completely separated. And this is not something that has happened since the Hamas takeover. This separation has been envisaged and it's documented and I refer to it in my report. This separation has been envisaged since 1967, actually since even before, because for Israel, the, the nightmare represented by the Palestinians has always been expressed in terms of demographics. The demographic growth of the Palestinian has always been perceived as a threat to the Jewish nature of the state, wherever the Palestinians were. But even, I mean, having Gaza as a as a as a uh, a place, a, a small piece of land with, uh, I think, 70 percent, if I, I I remember correctly, now the, the number, the, the, not sure, but seventy percent of the people in Gaza are refugees from modern day Israel. So people with claims uh, to, to, to receive justice, accountability, and, and so it has always been a nightmare <laughs> historically, and this is documented. But now, so this piece of land, it's enclosed. So the people in Gaza cannot access and fully enjoy uh, the, the territorial water because Israel keeps a tight patrolling and control over the land. Airspace cannot be used because of the blockade. And the blockade has another component, not just sea and, and air, but also land. And it's not just keeping enforcing, like um, uh, determining who enters and who exits, what enters and what exits. But it is also, um, I think it's a 12 or 13 kilometers um, in, in word into Gaza piece of land where, uh, no, no, sorry, it's not, no, it's three kilometers, sorry, piece of land where Israel can exercise a form of control, including use uh, uh, fire over Palestinians that, that close to the, to the, to the, the separation, what Israel considers the border, but in fact, it's not a border. It's an armistice line where Israel has uh, built a wall and uh, again, and it has its crossings into, into and from Gaza. So even, and this is where the agricultural land is, and there has been a lot of appropriation, a lot of destruction of farming land and, and businesses. Plus, it's very difficult for the Gazans to import or export anything because of the blockade, which is a form of collective punishment, is illegal, is a war crime. This is what we are talking about. Do you hear any policymakers talking about Gaza? This is this is really I mean it's beyond disappointing and disconcerting. But however, moving to the to the West Bank, the West Bank is a piece of land uh, so separated from from the, the the Gaza Strip. Despite there is an agreement since two thousand five, it's a um, access and movement agreement that Israel the Israelis and the Palestinians have signed, which uh, stipulate the um, the freedom of movement and and of goods and people from and to Gaza and West Bank. Well, the West Bank is um, is fragmented into many pieces of, of 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 territory, and especially the situation has grown uh, particularly serious after the Oslo Agreement, the Oslo Accords, because under the Oslo Accords there is a, a gradual in the Oslo, in the minds of the drafters of the Oslo Accords there was a gradual transfer of uh, of power of authority, of sovereignty to the Palestinians. In fact, 30 years later, what we have is the, the main municipalities, the main cities, uh, Nablus, uh, Ramallah, um, uh, Hebron, uh, and, so, and, so, and so on and so forth, where 
there is the control, full control by the Palestinian Authority. Uh, the peri-urban area called around the main city, the um, area B, uh, this is under civic control of the Palestinian Authority, which is to provide the services, access to uh, water, education, uh, um, hospitals, etc. Uh, but the security control is uh, under Israel's responsibility. 61% of the land, all the land, apart from the municipalities and the peri-urban areas, is under Israeli control, full control. But the, the responsibility to deliver basic services is on the Palestinians. At the same time, the, the, the ruler is Israel. It's Israel who determines who can build and not build. And in fact, this is why just a small percentage, I think 99% of the permit uh, demanded to build, demanded by the Palestinians, 99% um, are rejected. Oh, and uh, in, the, in the land that it's occupied, so they cannot build. And this is why Israel says, well, we demolish these houses because they're illegal. Yeah, but they're illegal because Israel abuses of its powers and doesn't give the per permit to, to build. And uh, and um, and so, and plus in this land, there are hundreds checkpoints. So main entrance and exits from and, and to Israel, Palestinian cities are controlled by, by Israel through checkpoints, plus there are the flying checkpoints that Israel establishes where it wants. And you, it's just a matter of read the testimonies of the former soldiers who broke the silence, those in breaking the silence. Read what they say. They say we are there to make our presence felt and to, um, and to make sure that the Palestinians keep their head low. Why law? Why so? Because of, and this is the last element that I wanted to bring to the discussion, the 270 colonies. Why Israel is colonizing the land? In order not to live it. In order to take as much land as possible with the, the minimum Palestinian, minimum number of Palestinian possible. And this is why the Palestinians are being kicked out of the land, like Masafariata, an area south of Hebron, where 1,200 Palestinians are being evicted you know why? Because Israel is to open a firing zone, a place where the soldiers can train. But do you understand the, uh, do you appreciate the cynicism and the cruelty of kicking out people who have been, by the way, forced to live in middle age condition because of lack of permits um, and without the possibility of accessing a sustainable economy, being for now 30 years under brutal, draconian military rule uh, since the Oslo Accords, but always under occupation for 55 years. Right. So you have these the, people that are living under occupation and also yeah. being kicked out of their homes, essentially. Yeah. Yes. Yes. This is the reality. And again, you know, people, I, I, I get really puzzled when people say, yeah, you are biased. How? I'm not biased. I mean, I'm telling what happens. This is the reality on the ground. Of course, there are huge responsibilities of the Palestinian authorities. There are violations committed by Hamas in Gaza. There are violations committed by the Palestinian authorities. And I'm writing a report about detention right now, arrest and detention and practices of carcerality. And of course, I have huge criticism over practices uh, of the Palestinian Authority. But the root cause of all these, I mean, the overarching system is Israel's occupation. Israel shouldn't have military troops in the occupied territory. The territory should not be occupied in the name of the law of self-determination. And again, I was telling you, do you imagine the cruelty of kicking out people from their poor homes, uh, the underdeveloped homes, forcibly so, because soldiers have to train, have to fire. What is this? So this is why, I mean, it's, it's really disappointing that in the face of all this, when you hear the news in, uh, in Europe, as in North America, it's just this talk about the parties not making peace. There is no parties. There is one occupier and one, one people is occupied. There is one colonizer and there is one population which is colonized. If we could, and I don't know that you can really talk about this. I know it's a, a, a still developing event, but 
I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on the recent events that unfolded in Huara, uh, the the um, Palestinian village that was attacked in the West Bank by settlers. How should we understand that recent event in the context of the work you're doing on occupied territories and human rights? Hmm. Look, I know that it might sound shocking, but what has happened in Hawara is not unprecedented. It's unprecedented in only one way, the scale of violence, but it's constitutive and, and, the, and, and the impact of destruction. But uh, the constitutive elements of it, so violent settlers assaulting uh, Palestinian civilians and property, damaging um, damaging houses and any other property, terrorizing people, beating them up, uh, setting ablaze everything they find, orchards or or uh, homes. This is a this is a normal recurrence in the occupied Palestinian territory, and even the fact that the army escorts or is present when these violations occur. And, 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 and this is something that happens every day. Um, there is even video documentation of Palestinians resisting, uh, and I even have a name and family name of the case I'm mentioning, but again, it's one among many. So the pal- Palestinian resisting violent settlers who come into his property and attack him while he's uh, um, harvesting and 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 harm him? He tries to defend himself. He gets injured. The army goes there and arrests him, and he gets him, and 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 he stays for days in in prison. And the only reason why eventually he's set free is because there is video evidence of this, but uh, hadn't there been any video evidence, uh, the army would have gone with the settlers' allegation that the Palestinian had attacked him. Doesn't matter if they were in, if the settlers had trespassed. You know what I've learned uh, through reading the testimonies of Israeli soldiers? That most of the West Bank, on top of this colonization that I've mentioned, the division A in area A, B, C, there is something called the red lines. These are imaginary, for most of us, red lines that run around settlements because the settlements are cities and villages established for Jews only uh, inside the occupied Palestinian territory and normally on hilltops so that they can also serve a security purpose. And then there is a civilian population, but there is always the army. And there is also a security coordinator, which is inside the settlement. It's a civilian, but is on is is on the on the payroll of the Israeli government. And there is a tight coordination, security coordination between the settlers and uh, through this security coordinator and the army. And in fact, it's the settlers telling the army in many instances what to do, and including where the Palestinians can and cannot go. So around the settlements, there is rural area, and the settlers determine that the Palestinians have crossed the red line. This is why many Palestinians are approached by set, by by the army in um, in their fields uh, in their in the rural area. The army tells them, "Well, you have to go." Why? Because you have to go. These are the orders. And if there is an opposition, the Palestinian gets arrested. But the red lines are established by the settlers. I was just going to add to that. This is what you mean in the report when you talk about uh, territorial fragmentation and how that's used to prevent unity when it comes to Palestinians, right? Yeah. Yeah, there is a huge fragmentation. And also, I I, I failed to mention, is Jerusalem, which is completely sealed off by uh, from from the rest of the West Bank, and imagine that each city, each Palestinian city, uh, and including Jerusalem, is strangled, physically strangled by the presence of settlements. If you, any in your audience, looks at the map of the occupied Palestinian territory and looks at the West Bank, uh, you uh, he or she will see that there are settlements built around uh, the, uh, the the cities, 
the villages, and also look at the wall, the wall, the so-called security wall, which the, the um, Palestinians have been called since 2004, the apartheid wall, is a wall that doesn't run on the, let's say, the green line uh, between uh, the West Bank and Israel. He sneaks, it sneaks into the, the West Bank in order to secure the settlements inside. Um, most of the settlements are on the other side of the wall, so not in the West Bank near Israel, and also the water basins. Most of the water sources are outside of the wall, so inaccessible to the Palestinians. I just had a few more questions here. Um, a big one that I, I wanted to discuss with you, a big issue is um, we often see criticism of the state of Israel and the occupation paint it as being nothing more than some type of um, anti-Semitism, you know, where people say, oh, that's just vicious anti-Semitism to criticize the occupation. Uh, how do you respond to that? And do you think there's uh, maybe a problem that exists with people using the very real issue of anti-Semitism as sort of a, a weaponized thing to prevent criticism of Israel and sort of conflating criticism of the state of Israel and its occupation with, um, you know, anti-Semitism. Of course, of course. And I think it starts to be also full, fully documented. The the weaponization of anti-Semitism is a, is a consolidated phenomenon and it's, a, it's something that pro-Israel, that Israel, as part of its... Uh, Mm, how to say it's uh, ways to defend itself has concocted and pro-Israel groups have used forcefully in order to silence uh, legitimate criticism because frankly scrutiny of state practices is part and parcel of the of the international system of the UN system itself and no state should be above the law. I again, first of all, I have an issue as a as a secular person. I have an issue with states which identify themselves with uh, a religious um, a religious appartenance or sense of belonging. Hmm? But whatever the people decide to do, as long as there is no discriminatory against anyone. No one should be above the law. And the criticizing, in what way can criticizing a state make yourself racist? Because the accusation of anti-Semitism eventually boils down to racism. Of course, um, it's a, eventually this is a weapon to, as a tool to deflect the attention from the issues that are being raised. I know that this is not an attack against me. Uh, it's an attack against uh, my voice as a special rapporteur. And uh, it's something that I'm, uh, I'm very eager to, to tackle, to address for two reasons. First of all, because it's contributing to shrinking space, uh, shrinking civic space um, to discuss the question of Palestine, Israel, Palestine, and questions of human rights and justice therein. But also, as a European, I feel I feel extremely concerned by this um, attribution of response, this ultimate responsibility, uh, this ultimate attribution of responsibility for what Israel does to any any. Mm, any Jewish person. It's not that every Jewish person is uh, needs to have a position about, about Israel. So why should we assume that every Jewish person supports what Israel does? And so this weaponization of anti-Semitism and this equation, this conflation of uh, criticism of Israel uh, with anti-Semitism risks to undermine the safety of the Jews wherever they are. I mean, the mind support Israel which is okay. It's just, the, 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 of course, anyone can do that. But in any case, the criticism, in my view, remains with the state of it. My criticism remains with the state of Israel, as well as all states that support it. 
And it does not really, the more I know Israel and the inter, intra-Israel dynamics, the more I say this is not a, this is not even about the Israelis, because there are so many Israelis who are not, not as many as we would need, but many Israelis who are against it, who, who see the brutality of the occupation, who do not want it, and, and they are silenced as well. So in regards to... Um the sort of paradigm shift that we need to occur with regards to the international communities, this course around the OPT and human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the paradigm shift that you describe in your report? Mm. Yeah, I, I call for a radical change of approach to the question of Palestine. And I said, first of all, we need to reset the mind um, in the sense that the way the issue, the overall question of Israel-Palestine is discussed, is portrayed uh, in the public discourse, uh, in the media, is faulty. Uh, there is a false equi equivalence that is often pushed forward um, by this continuous reference, for example, now, as we see the facts of Hawara, for example, the parties, uh, the, the, the <coughs> people calling for uh, the parties to de-escalate, uh, which parties and what de-escalation? I mean, this is a daily violence in the occupied Palestinian territory is a daily occurrence and the Palestinians are often on the receiving end of it. So Hawara, I said why this is not, this is not, you know, so what we have seen in Hawara, I cannot qualify this as a flare-up because in, in, in the occupied Palestinian territory, there are no flares up and uh, and calms that that that, that, that it exists on a permanent basis when the flare up subsides. The life in occupied uh, in the occupied Palestinian territory is made of brutal violence at the hand of settlers and um, and Israeli soldiers, land confiscation, forced displacement mass arrest and detention, including of kids, you know, as we speak, there are there are over 5,000 prisoners and one, one fifth of them is there under, is un, is in prison without, uh, without charges and even 24 people in solitary confinement. So in Hawara, we have seen settlers, I mean, it, it's still to be investigated whether what was the level of complicity and participation of the army. But there have been um, over 20 houses set ablaze, uh, hundreds of cars also torched. There has been violence against and terrorization of the civilian population for hours. This was, why did the settlers do that? Why hundreds of settlers flocked into Hawara uh, with the intention to harm um, its residents? Because there had been a killing of two um, uh, Israelis in a nearby settlement um, just a few hours before. And, um, and so this was claimed, this attack was claimed to be in retaliation. Worth of notice is there have been a number of statements, including by Smotrich, uh, right, that's a little Smotrich for people that don't know the, uh, I believe he's the finance minister in Israel right yes. now. Yes. Uh, he, he, he apparently openly said uh, that Huara needs to be wiped out. I mean, it, it's yes. all very, this is very concerning to me because, I mean, people will say, oh, well, these, uh, you know, a Palestinian gunman killed two settlers. That's what led to this. But it seems like there's a big difference uh, between exactly. a, an individual Palestinian doing that, two settlers, uh, and just burning down an entire village and then having Smotrich essentially, uh, in, in a weird way, uh, almost condone it. He didn't just say, wipe it out. He said, this is not something that we should let civilians do. The, the, the state should do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and many people are denouncing the gen sort of genocidal tone of these statements, but you, I would like to make two comments here. Again, you, I mean, it's very difficult to have, I understand, because this is something that has been ongoing for so long, but it's not a 
And the, the nexus, the causality nexus needs to be understood better. And again, Israel maintains such a repressive system over the Palestinians, which, as I said, requires a lot of violence, uh, because it, through this occupation, Israel aims to keep the Palestinians head down and to take as many resources and land as possible from them. The Palestinians are have no protection whatsoever because clearly the international community is not protecting them, is not protecting them even from the abuses, uh, the verbal abuses that that or the harassment and even the civil society even the civil society experiences with the designation of terrorism uh, and the raiding of their offices and so on. Yeah, there is work, work of condemnation, but this is what the international community does. And the international community also does not fully challenge the designation of Palestinians as terrorists for resisting the occupation. So the, the Palestinians, I think feel very much left on their own but this doesn't matter what happens is that while indiscriminate attacks against civilians are to be condemned and i do condemn them no matter who's the author a palestinians or an israeli there are two different things here certain acts are crimes committed by the individual Palestinians. But on the other hand, there is an institutionalized, widespread and systemic set of violations that happen at the end, at the, at the, at the hand of the Israeli state through the army and through the colonists, colonists, through the settlers. It's very different. So the over, this is why I say the only way to understand this issue and to get out of the past is to address the root causes, the legality of the occupation. And this leads me, if you're fine with this in Onawara, I will move to the question of the paradigm shift. Yes, yeah. So the paradigm, I will start from the beginning. The paradigm shift I'm calling for is first and foremost um, a resetting of the mind. So the way we look and the way we uh, we discuss, we narrate the question of, of, of Palestine because there is a problem with the language. Calling it a conflict without qualification is misleading. This is not the conflict between the two parties. And even the language that we have inherited uh, from the Oslo agreements referring to Israel and Palestine as the parties, as, as if they, are, they were equal in nature and force and in status, this is not the case against the relationship. The reality is that the Palestinians under occupation in the West Bank, Gaza Strip and East Jerusalem are <clears throat> again under occupation and they uh, experience severe limitations of their basic rights and freedoms under the, a 55 year long military occupation, which is there to take as much land as possible from the Palestinians without the Palestinians. In it. So, and this leads to the confinement of the Palestinians. So, this is why I said the, the, the language is that yes, Israel is committing the crime of apartheid. And the reason why it's committing the, the crime of apartheid is because of the very settler colonial intention of the occupation. The military occupation is settler colonial because it aims to displace um, the native population in order to colonize the land. And uh, so there is the, there should be a change a change of language. Um, but also, uh, and this is the second element of the paradigm of the paradigm shift, there should be a change of engagement. So it should be international law reorienting politics and not the politics determining uh, the role of international law. Insofar as international law is used as the uncomfortable guest, be kept in the waiting room, the state of affairs will remain will remain this. It will be very difficult to env envisage uh, sustainable solutions. This is why I say part of the paradigm shift is the reorient the engagement on the question of Palestine based on the primacy of international law and the human rights-based approach. And the third issue is accountability. And accountability means not just criminal criminal accountability, Yes, there should be investigation and prosecution of all heinous crimes that have taken place in the occupied Palestinian territory. But at the same time, before this, there should be 
the application of state responsibility, the law of state responsibility. So accountability also means application of international law at large. So not recognition of the illegal, illegal situation created by Israel, uh, not, not extending aid and not cooperating with the state of Israel and not recognizing uh, the consequences of the legal situation, but also ask for reparations. So all this is a form of restoring justice in the occupied Palestinian territory. What are the key points that you hope my listeners get out of the conversation you and I have been having about these issues? Probably two things. Uh, Don't take what you read in the media at face value, because there is, especially in the West, there is a quite a significant, um, I would say, again, I want to imagine that it's in good faith, but quite a a significant misinterpretation of the facts on the ground. The second thing is that uh, advocating for uh, the application of international law uh, is not just in the interest of the of the Palestinians, it's also in the interest of the Israelis, the Jewish Israelis, because dismantling a settler colonial regime is a necessity and is going to benefit everyone because, again, it, it, it's a painful reality that affects both people, although, of course, uh, the responsibility, the agency and the suffering is different. But dismantling the privilege that goes with the segregation of the Palestinians. It's a legal and moral responsibility. And again, uh, I'm not obsessed with, with, although I'm a lawyer, I'm not obsessed with international law. I don't think that international law can live on its own and in a, in a silo. But at the same time, I, I, I think the same of, of the politics. Like in every, in every dispute, when there is an issue, we go to we look. We look at the law because the law is uh, is meant um, to regulate our life, and so the the relations among states and international relations, and and ensure peaceful co- coexistence. This is true at individual level and state and people's level, and so it should be applied in the occupied Palestinian territory as well. Also, just really briefly here, I promise to let you go because we've gone over an hour now, and I, I appreciate your time a lot. It's been a fascinating discussion. I felt like, you know, I, I, this is like a crash course that you're giving us in the mm-hmm. occupied territories, and I appreciate that. But um, you mentioned taking a human rights-based approach uh, to these issues. For people that are unfamiliar with that term, what does that mean to take a human rights-based approach? Uh Reenvisaging the reality on the basis of the human rights that all of us have, uh, civil and political rights, economic, social and cultural rights, uh, living a- according to basic forms of protection as an individual and as a collective. And, you know, human rights, um, when you when you study human rights, you learn these beautiful concepts like human rights are indivisible, inalienable, and universal. And what does it mean? That they belong to everyone, and they belong to every individual, and every individual has it will experience limitations based on other people's uh, rights and um, and freedoms. What I, what I what I think is important to retain is that human rights are really for human beings, <laughs> not just for us to for lawyers to go and and discuss. Um, and so for for me, applying a human rights approach mean, means making life uh, a better place and an enjoyable place for for everyone. And again, but this also means uh, I often say an international law and human rights based approach because also I think that there are certain rules, that are um, set in other frameworks. And for example, the legality of the settlements, when I say the dismantlement of the occupation, I also say I don't call for the uprooting, for the violent uprooting of any settlers, but the land that has been stolen to the Palestinians should be returned. And therefore, all the, uh, the Jewish Israeli settlers, who do, I mean, those who are now illegal settlers who want to stay in Palestine, as Palestinians, they will stay as Palestinian pe- pe- people and protected under under the state of Palestine, and there will be an international community being the guarantor of it, as it's a, as it ha- happens everywhere. 
This means applying internet, human rights, a human rights-based approach within the context of application of international law at large. When you have people that talk with you about this issue that are new to it, how do you explain to them, why why are these settlers taking this land? And then we'll leave it at that. Uh, uh, look, again, I've not carried out a study of, uh, and um, like a survey of the settlements myself, but based on the literature that I've consulted um, and the interviews I've carried out, yeah, the materials I've, uh, I've considered. My understanding is that this is not an answer that, ha- sorry, this is not a question that has one answer only, in the sense that there are uh, settlers who are there the most ideological and and fanatic, they are there on a messianic sort of uh, enterprise, biblical enterprise, to reconstitute the land, uh, the the land uh, of Israel, Heretz Israel, as it was uh, in ancient, really biblical times, I guess. Which is uh, frankly a bit outlandish for me, but again, you need with all sorts of characters. Um, there are different professions that can take care of these cases. Surely international law should be the perimeter. So whatever their claims are, they are outlandish. <laughs> Makes no sense. And still, we treat it as normal. So there are, I, again, I don't know how big this, uh, this population is, because it could be a fringe, but it's very violent and it's unleashed. And it's, I mean, most settlers have carry weapons. Um, then there are also settlers who are economic ones. There are people who who who, who have moved to settlers to settlements because it's more convenient because Israel provides for everything: transportation, uh, um, easy housing services, and uh, and a lot of amenities. Uh, so it's it's convenient, and so just uh, people probably don't think of the harm that they are doing to the Palestinians. They don't think in terms of uh, how abusive their conduct is, but it's quite different than uh, taking up arms and uh, roaming around the West Bank, hurting, harming people. So it's different. They are all illegal, eventually. They are all part of an illegal enterprise. Uh, But yeah, I think that it's important also to understand that, you know, if you take, if, if Israel stopped, providing services services and treating these pieces of land as uh, I call them bubbles of extraterritoriality and withdrew the protection. I'd like to see how many settlers remain. And this is why there should be an international pressure on Israel to, to withdraw from the territories. Well, I want to thank you again, Francesca Abanesi, for coming on Parallax Views. And I look forward to your next report as the UN Special Rapporteur. Thank you very much. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Francesca Abanese, the UN Special Rapporteur on the situation of human rights in the Palestinian territories occupied since 1967. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say, don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that. Uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. 
Afraid. I'm not afraid.